Coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. We're seeing the devastating impact of this invisible killer. There will come a moment when no health service in the world could possibly cope, because there won't be enough ventilators, enough intensive care beds, enough doctors and nurses. That is the moment of real danger. The new variant is out of control, and we need to bring it under control. And this news about the new variant has been a uh, an incredibly difficult end to, frankly, an awful year. And it's important for everybody to act, essentially act like they might have the virus. And that's the way that we can control it together. The way ahead is hard. And it is still true that many lives will sadly be lost. Our advisory group on new and emerging respiratory virus threats, nerve tag, has spent the last few days analyzing this new variant. It may be up to 70% more transmissible than the old variant, the original version of the disease. You, you might be infectious, and that's the way that we have to behave at this moment. Assume you might be infectious, assume you might be infectious, and that's the way that we have to behave at this moment. Today, the United Kingdom's chief medical officers have advised that the country should move to alert level five, meaning that uh, if action is not taken, NHS capacity may be overwhelmed within 21 days. And it's going to spread further. And I, I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. Your colleague on stage, John Edmonds, has just sent me a statement saying that as far as he's concerned, this is the worst moment of the epidemic because of the extraordinary inf infectivity of this new strain. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, this is a horrible moment for sure. I to say, as I'm really sorry to hear about your two relatives who died from this virus. I mean, it is a very dangerous virus uh, for many people. We're looking to move to a different regime, so as we come to the fourth step, we will change the basic tools that we have used to control human behaviour.
risk of after reading that little line, I will be arrested for not taking a fucking vaccine. This is not a fucking joke anymore. This is fucking dead serious. I am fucking dead serious. These people don't know who the fuck they're actually playing with. Yeah, in a coup they might come and fucking intimidate me and whatnot. But fuck, they do not understand what the fuck just one person like myself is capable of. They do not fucking understand. No fucking vaccine or MRA will ever flow through my fucking blood blood. Never! I will fucking die fucking fighting for my forefathers and my fucking lineage. Fuck these motherfuckers. Yes, that was a quick transition for the camera. Nice uh, start the week off. It's Monday for me. The dog's at the coalface, and uh, we have Shogun Rikasu with us today. Let me... Should be in. Bang on. Still thinking about that. Um, yes, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, swarms, aerosols, um, our souls, the... Um, you name it, we'll probably cover it. But uh, Shogun Rikasu, good to see you, sir. Looking well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hey, you've been a busy man. Belated happy birthday, bro. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's all downhill from there, though, bro. <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, well, actually, I got sick. So now oh, no I'm shit. <laughs> sick after being in Texas for a week for a wedding. So. Oh. Yeah. Um. Do you know what it was? Oh, I don't care. I don't know. I'm just, um, I'm just trying to do as little as possible. I finally have a bed, so uh, just the finer things in life. Yeah, you're, you're, uh... the finer things. Now, it, granted, it is a king size bed, but um, before I was sleeping on my couch, so so it is nice. But I just had my first proper sleep in, a, yeah, sleep of an afternoon. Yeah, nice, bro. Oh. Um, maybe Mary will join us later on. Um, she says she's just having a little nap, but uh, I think uh, a virologist. Yeah, what does she know about viruses? Yeah, her with a PhD. Yeah, her PhD. I feel like she has an excuse with a new kid. 
right and just uh you know working with it in real time you know what does she know it's all an illusion (laughs) well you know why why do we want to bring this up well the issue why not issue there was just uh, a tweet i saw earlier just to fill the audience in showed it to charles and uh let me let me do this hold on i've already seen the tweet i gotta go get pizza out of the oven so yeah 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 no worries dude oh, yep. yeah i can i can handle it um Uh, hey, I wanted to show this meme today. Just uh, oh, you can't see it, folks. <laughs> this one from Good Dog is great. Uh, to crush Kunan, <laughs> what is best in life? Crush my enemies to death with memes. You will never be a woman. I love it. Um, that one's an instant classic. I'm I'm on the screen here. No, I don't need to be on the screen because we're doing um, doing shared screen and stuff. Do this and do this. And so um, I saw a, a tweet from Mark Hustonic, and I think I think it very much encapsulated the um, ideologically driven thinking or mo- motivated thinking because you want a specific outcome and when you want that outcome, you'll literally grasp and spout anything. And the wording on the tweet was, there are no endlessly replicating molecules that can cause a global pandemic, not in nature, not from a lab, and not from any gain of function. My response was, this is uh, the gibberish you come up with. When you apply mathematical abstractions to complex biology and what do i mean by mathematical abstractions well this comes from when you're using uh, theorems frameworks uh, in this particular instance this would be derived from quasi species uh, swarm uh, theory um it's not it's not a nailed on um law of <laughs> of nature and there are there are multiple issues with that um framework and hypothesis and one of those is that there's a constant high mutation rate and um this um, this would eventually lead to a kind of um species self-destruction um because you would just build up too many aberrant uh, mutations such that the uh, species of virus um, is unable to uh, propagate uh, beyond the cell that it's um, occupying. Um, Now, I think we're going to work towards that uh, premise, but what myself and Charles thought we would do is take a step back and we would look at... Um, real world evidence 
um, for where that no, actually charged me. Can he said that real world evidence? No, I'm just pulling it out of my ass. It's not, <laughs> it's not science, right? And the the <clears throat> the real world evidence where theory always crashes into actual reality, and um, so we're going to take a step back, and I'm going to let Charles sort of build the case for aerosolization, um, why it's so important, and then we can begin to break down the, uh, <clears throat> the assumption that's being used to spread the idea that, well, viruses can't spread, and anything that we've seen is them going along with crop dusters, squirting out uh, plasmids onto unsuspecting populations. Um, uh, duh. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear that. Duh. 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 <laughs> of course. It's all crop dusters. <clears throat> all, all, all crop dusters and those sneaky aerosol cans in backpacks. Um, oh, that actually might. You know what? I've got a t-shirt that can help teach this concept. So okay. stand by. Okay. okay. <laughs> Standing by, bro. Uh, uh, whilst uh, Charles is digging through the wardrobe, um, what has the doc been up to? Not much, really. I, I streamed so much over the last week, felt non-stop, and I upset so many people with the streams that I did do. Um, all right. So, so first of all, I just want to provide my credentials. Oh, so here, see, this is a NATO. Let's see if I can get there. That's a NATO conception of what a spray attack looks like. Typically, this could be chemical or biological, but uh, this this is from the Seaburn Planners course in 2016, where I was a student. However, I wrote this course. I created this course, and then I was I had to officially go through it just to get credit for it because they wouldn't count the fact that I wrote it. <laughs> so, Talk about an easy exam to take. <laughs> that is correct. I wrote the exams. So, <laughs> so I, I was ineligible for the, for the honor grad of the class. But uh, anyway, so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to bioweapons and when it comes to spray attacks of biological weapons. <clears throat> I mean, the shirt literally has my name on it. But whatever. Hang whatever, on. You know. Hang on. I just need to get control of the chat. Um, uh oh. What Nick are they says, saying? Nick says you need to shop for a tighter shirt. Um, <laughs> Nick, <laughs> row one, sir. Row one. I wore this just for him. <laughs> I've been working out. So, yeah. Well, well prior to going on a road trip for a week. So, um, but. You show those you guns want. off, sir. Don't worry. Don't worry about our. Uh... <laughs> I also <laughs> so while I was in Texas, I saw this is not related at all to aerosol dynamics. Uh, whenever I was in Texas, uh, I saw the movie Barbie. That was funny. Which you know, it's a. Uh, actually, I saw it twice because oh, fantastic. My family was really excited about this movie. It, it was okay. I mean, it was. It was gender woo propaganda bullshit. But it was act, like there were funny parts to it where they were making fun of, you know, they were fairly honest in their depiction of, of things. They just didn't come out and say 
the rest of it, which is, yes, this is ridiculous, but this is actually the stupidity that we're dealing with right now. It's actually, the reality is even dumber than this right now. Mm-hmm. But they had a, uh, at one point, like, Ken is having an existential crisis because he doesn't know what he's meant to be in this world. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he walks around with this like frilly coat that says, I am Kenuff. And I think we, we need to get the audience to make a, I am Kunuff uh, t-shirt or something. Anybody who's seen it in the chat will know what it is. So, so get busy, make a meme. Okay. Um, But anyway, yeah, it's, it's not really important. I'm just going to save you the time from watching the movie. It's not that good. Yeah, I can't say it would be high up on my list. I like I say, I make my kids watch Conan. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was captive in a house of, uh, uh, well, nine Women people and babies. I, I didn't get to choose. Yeah, I know that feeling, dude. <laughs> well, it was yeah, it was it was a really fun wedding. My sister got married, and uh, it was really well done. Mm, weddings are great. I love them. Um, yeah. I mean, I actually don't mind them, but you know, it was it was fun. That's a chance it. to get drunk, and uh, you know, it's uh, well, it's well, I had to drive sick. back twelve hundred miles afterwards. So, ah, uh, okay, okay. Well, but that anyway, would, that would kind of suck then. Well, I always Neither get wasted in weddings. <laughs> no, I can't see that at all. <laughs> but anyway, weddings are also a great place to spread aerosol viruses because you're singing and dancing and not. Now viruses aren't real, but if they were, then that'd be a good place for them to spread. So, um, so I being completely... the expert you are in the uh, trigonometry of aerosol spread for the line yes. dancing, you knew exactly where to stand. That's such exactly that right. You could get sick <clears throat> because you did get sick. That is true. Okay. Well, I, I probably got sick in the house where there was also dogs and cats, both of which I'm allergic to. And mm. so that kind of, that probably just triggered me. You know what? The, our black cat started doing, well, if she can, right? If I'm in bed, she sneaks into the room. She, she'd cuddle up to me and she's got a thing now where she'll go straight under my chin. I don't know if she's like, thinks she's suckling or something. Oh, oh, I already know what you're going to say. She's like, like, like nipping on your neck. Yeah. And licking and, uh, and I'm like sleeping. I'm like, bloody hell. Your neck, your neck looks like, uh, looks like cat teeth. Apparently. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> no, what's uh, interesting is that my, my, my parents also have a cat that does that named Kalua. Okay. Who, who's she's been lovingly for about a decade known as like vampire kitty, because that's what she does. She'll come up. I think it has something to do when they're not weaned properly or something. Okay. But they'll come up and they'll like suck on your neck. Yeah, yeah. Um, she did that. She did that to me. Like if you don't, if you lay down anywhere in the house, she'll come up and lay down on you and then suck at your neck. Yeah, that's that's what started happening to me. And <laughs> well, there. I mean, it's a it's a sign of something. I'm yeah, uh, sign of uh, those cats' lives running out. But uh, that's just me. <laughs> well, especially if they're dumb enough to like lay next to you when you're flopping around. <laughs> Look, man, I don't move. I I go to sleep in one position. I wake up in one position. So at least they're safe. Not that I would would know about your sleeping (laughs) habits. So anyway, well, well, the accusation was that you were you were here for nefarious reasons. Why wouldn't you know? Hmm? I was clearly. (laughs) Oh, Mando with uh, fifty bucks. Thank you, sir. It's much much appreciated. Um, Oh, did you tweet this out, dude? I did, of course. Nice. Um. Okay, so uh, we've established that 
um, you have the credentials to certainly be speaking about. I, I mean, the Marine Corps seem to think so. Mm, mm, Since I, um, I, I literally wrote the curriculum for a new course for people of my rank. And then I did, I did pretty well grade-wise in that course. I'm just mm, saying. Mm. I'm just going out there. But yes, so I do know what I'm talking about with this. I, I did used to brief, uh, after I taught it to the Marines at the embassies, like when they went through their schooling, I would, I would brief anytime there was an incident, which most of the time it was white powder and, uh, which we treat as if it was anthrax until you, you know, otherwise. And, uh, aerosol is how aerosolized anthrax. That's the whole point of it. So well, don't the you know, anthrax the... ones come with, uh, us stamps on and, uh, courtesy of CIA. Well, post-marked. so, so the Soviet Union weaponized about 80 tons of anthrax, which is a lot. That's enough to kill every human and enough to kill every living thing on the planet that can get infected with, with anthrax like a billion times over or something. Um, but, well, there's so many things that I don't really know what would be best to cover, but the U S did it. The, um, the Soviets did it. Other people, like aerosolized anthrax. I want to say, what was it? Uh, Zimbabwe, maybe? That that Meryl Nass, back in the 70s, like she was able to, I think it was 78, where she proved that they'd used oh, uh, Rhodesia. Weaponized men. Rhodesia. Right, back I when think it was. Yeah. Well, it's no longer, I think it's Zimbabwe now. Um, uh, no, sir. Just uh, how old your oh, horses sorry. there? <laughs> sorry, it's all, it's all the same, right? Is that <laughs> so, um, but it's still so, Britain? So, <laughs> all right, whatever. You don't even claim Britain anymore, so no, I don't, man. Uh, I've disowned that country. Fuck them. Well, yeah, I'm thinking about going there and just in the spring to watch a Liverpool match. But anyway, um, so well, that, that would tempt key, me. So I get arrested, thing, bro. That's the thing. Well, that's because that's because you're a racist member of the BNP. So <laughs> just one tweet history. They, yeah, they you send SWAT teams in. Anyway, so aerosol transmission. So, and anthrax is a really great way to like introduce it because anthrax is like the perfect example of a weaponized biological agent. And how was it weaponized? It was primarily weaponized through aerosolization. So, I'm not saying there's a correlation here. But what would be what the small about, size um, in that um, oh, lysolized amerithrax? I don't remember the spore size. That's a, a quick question. We can... It's a quick question, but it's there's they're they're tiny, um, and they because of what they did, they mixed them with chemicals to make them so that way they could be suspended in air. And um, so aerosolized, like weaponized anthrax can stay suspended for hours and hours and hours. So actually it's one to 1.5 by 1.8 micrometers. It's about about 100 nanometers. So it's, it's, it's It's tiny. Sort of very unsized then. Um, yeah. And so there's a, well, 
the real key to understand here is that weaponized anthrax has been around since I want to say like the 60s. They were trying to aerosolize it for decades after World War II, um, partially based on the knowledge gained from the Japanese using um, anthrax on Chinese people when they were fighting the war against China before and during the World War II. Um, and then, of course, those scientists, just like Nazi scientists in Paperclip, Operation Paperclip, uh, many of them, or at least the knowledge gained from those Japanese scientists was sent to the U.S. Um, and from that, over time, they were able to figure out, okay, anthrax can stay in the soil for decades because it has a spore form. And that spore form allows it to go dormant. And if you can take that dormant form, which is very stable in the environment, and then attach a, a chemical substrate to it so that way it's, it can float in the air for longer, which is basically what they do. Um, that is how you weaponize anthrax. But what we're talking about, the ultimate, what is the problem with anthrax in the sense of a bioweapon? Anthrax is not a contagious disease that can be spread from one person to the next. So if for all of those people who got sick with anthrax, they died, but they didn't pass that infection on to somebody else. Now, they could be contaminated with spores that could cause somebody else to get, you know, a contaminated. No, they're, like they're a, a thousand those. times larger than viruses. Sorry. Uh, a micrometer is a thousand nanometers, and a virus is a hundred nanometers, usually. They're about a thousand times larger. Sorry. Sorry, I, sorry, I had to check. I mean, Just make sure we've got the... Uh, what they are is there's, it's smaller... Like it's in the realm of that our filters can't effectively mask from it forever because because our masks have leaks on the side. The reason why the main reason why military males have to shave is because they can't wear a mask. They learned this after World War One or during World War One. So the way to keep a seal in a mask is to have a clean shaven face, <clears throat> and like that that technology hasn't really changed that much surprisingly because there's only so much you can do to filter out air and these particles are so small and it, because they can get into the lungs this is key for later because they can get into the lungs they can bypass as an aerosolized form they can bypass most of your body's defenses and once they do that that lowers the amount of of virion or the amount of bacterial spore or whatever it is to trigger a, a symptomatic infection simply because it's bypassed everything and it can go directly where it needs to go to cause the most damage. Now, the one thing they've never been able to do effectively is make a virus that can spread via aerosol naturally. So like it can sustain transmission like for instance, measles can do. Measles isn't lethal and it's even, it's, depending on how you look at it, it's not really that incapacitating. But, and actually, I don't know if we want to share my screen or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, you disabled it. Go. You're good to go. But... All right. So let's... Yeah, we'll just do screen two for now. Mm, no, we'll do this. Nope. There we go. All right. 
so I I can't exactly see. I I hope you're looking at my my Excel spreadsheet right now. Yes, not if... the other sketchy stuff you keep on your screen. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's kind of zoom in here. <clears throat> Uh, so what I did right here is I took a list of the 33 or 34 known or potential bioweapons list that I made that I compiled from those those two papers, and I added in information about, um, okay, what type of pathogen it is, the, um, the R-naught of the virus, whether it can spread via aerosol, whether it has a furin cleavage site whether it operates via some form of DC sign and whether it's neuroinvasive <clears throat> with links, of course. And this is once again on my public uh, worthless spreadsheet, uh, according to GC. <clears throat> but if you ever clicked on it, he might learn something. And basically what I want to show you is what I've done is I've sorted this by r not. So r not means the higher the number, the more transmissible uh, the virus is. Um, it's more complicated, but technically that's basically one person can is likely to infect X number of people. It, it, it's more complicated than that. But the higher the number, the more transmissible the virus is. And the most transmissible virus, and th this is an this is an average of different scores that are taken from different sources. That once again, of course, because I do due diligence, all the sources are down here. If you would like to see them. Uh da -da -da, keeps going. <clears throat> Um, I realize it's worthless, but bear with me. So here we have, it's not shocking that when I sorted this by how transmissible a virus was, whether it was bioweapons or not, um, you see all the aerosol viruses at the top. So, and I would and, say that SARS or <clears throat> not is different now that for, you've got, oh, okay. You've got Omicron further up. I yes. I've actually broken okay. it down by variants. Yeah. So. Let's just zoom in a little bit more here so people can see. <laughs> so uh, what what you were just talking about is that you ha we have uh, SARS-CoV-2 here. Um, and that is the wild type. And wild type, on average, has an R-naught of 5.6. This is higher than people are most people are thinking of when they're talking about it. But as time has gone on and they've done more and more studies, this is roughly what they've seen and shockingly we have delta as 6.5 or not and then omicron is at 9.5 depending on different source once again this is an average of different sources which i've provided at the bottom so if anybody wants to go and average these themselves they can so what you can see is is that all of these top ones, except for whooping cough, which is bacteria, all of them are neuroinvasive, have DC sign receptors, whether it's uh, 147 or whatever it is, um, more basically CD4. They all tr transmit via aerosol. And um, refresh my memory, what's the OG SARS? Did it did OG SARS is down here? It was actually only 2.5. So if you look but it, at the top it, of the screen, it did, it, it did cause a, a a sort of crash in white blood cells and yes. So we saw cells. similar T lymphocyte degradation um, in cases that would become serious. Um, 
it could spread via aerosol, but not to the degree that that this one can. Like there were super spreading events, but nothing on the scale of what we've seen now. And of course, my argument has been that they that this was intended to be a weapon, whether or not it was released on purpose, it was intended to be a weapon. And so, of course, if it's intended to be a weapon, we would expect it to be able to transmit via the most weaponizable pathway. Like they've hmm, they've dreamed for decades. They, they don't. They're not relying on uh, fomite exposure here. That's the, no, that's no, because 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 everything is designed around. The, we're we're so used to viruses that that spread via respiratory like when we think of the flu like we're so inculcated to think of, of every respiratory virus like as as if it was the flu but what i just showed you up here is that all these top ones are like rsv rsv is highly transmissible but it's not lethal the only reason it's becoming more dangerous now is because my, my presumption is related to igg4 um Class switching issues. It's related to general dis immune dysregulation on population scale, or just um, a new market for uh, new vaccines that target a new market the... for new vaccines. But but the key here is that I believe that it is transmissible. I mean, it's been transmissible <laughs> since the fifties when it when it would contaminate the stuff. You, you know safe. what you should do, dude. Just just for completeness sake, by RSV. After that, in brackets, just put chimpanzee Carrizo virus. Just, just for Nick. Just uh... all right. There we go. I'll put it in there. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. How people know, so. dude. I, I had such black pills this weekend to swallow. One was this uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, and uh, the Cyril of Jerusalem. Yeah, and the Wait, like you talk about ancient times. Yes, yes. Okay. And the I mean, it's more. My, my well, hobby the, the the take was it. Look, um, I have received a rebuttal. I intend to give it fair um, play as I did this other twenty minute video. But um, the, the what they were making out was that they were essentially taking young children using sodomy as a means of inculcating them into the faith and. Um, all sorts of mind fuckery going on. The second black pill, which was even worse for me. I mean, I, I like I said, I don't mean to offend my uh, Christian viewership. Um, it's just fascinating history for me. Um, the second one was was Nick was talking about uh, these chimpanzees cross transfusion. Um. I guess they, I guess you could call them experiments, but medical interventions, and they literally did it with children in hepatic coma. Oh, so, sweet! Yeah, so literally taking a taking a chimpanzee, running an IV line, and running it straight into. And this was in the seventies, dude. That's I, correct. I, yeah. I'd heard about this before, so I, I, I'm like, if you told me that was in the 1800s, I'd be like, yeah, okay, maybe 1970s. What? I'm sure. I'm sure that chimpanzee car Carrizo virus 
was just an accidental. Like I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure. Just one of those ones jumping out the jungle. Viruses aren't real, so it's just you know the common cold. Mm. You know, we're just giving a new name to the common cold because we want to make money off of it. Whatever. Anyway, um, well, so I, I, well, I have more black pills today than if. uh, Yeah, keep coming. Uh, (laughs) Look, I watched the taste of the last one. (laughs) Oh man, so many jokes I could make, but um, stop, stop giving me softballs like that, Kevin. Um. All right. So, anyway, <clears throat> yes, the world is f- full of evil, and bioweapons are real. So, uh, what we can see here is that aerosol plays a big part in things being highly transmissible. So, if there's a natural virus, which there are, they do exist, and <clears throat> see, like I just created aerosols there, but um, so I apologize, folks, but. But there's nobody else around me right now. So, um, what we see is that everybody knows that aerosolized the virus that can spread via aerosol is more highly transmissible for a whole host of reasons that we've known about for a really long time. And <clears throat> here we see what are so let's think of all of the things that kids actually get. And we have mumps, we have chicken pox, we have pertussis, so it means whooping cough. Um, even tuberculosis. These are less. So I guess diphtheria would, would and, and polio. So polio is not aerosolized, but a bunch of these other things are. And everybody has had RSV. Everybody has had measles. Everybody has had chickenpox. And guess what? All three of those are aerosolized viruses. They use different mechanisms to each other to like, it's kind of hard to explain, but there's like this, this raft of cells that of, of cells that measles can make when it's infecting you, that can make it easier to, to float around in the air, but whatever the, the mechanism is, they, they can transmit via aerosol. Uh, most of them also utilize fear and cleavage to some degree. Most of those also utilize DC sign, and then in the case specifically of measles, um, well, and some of these other ones, it can also be neuroinvasive. Now, if you if you look at this list again and you say, okay, well, if we look at column, this column right here, those are, are the viruses that are bioweapons ranked. <clears throat> and as we go down here, what we see is that smallpox and SARS-CoV-2 are the only two of all those viruses that are above like basically 2.5 or not. So we're talking about exceptional capability for spread in the right circumstances. And they're also basically the top two viruses. I want to say the number one was like ricin or something in this study. So the top two viruses... What's that? Ricin is a toxin. Yeah, ricin is a toxin. So I, I don't have a list on here because it's not transmissible. Um, and like, it's not, it's it, it's just a byproduct of a natural agent. It's not one itself. Mm. Um, so basically what we see is that SARS-CoV-2 is right up there with 
the wild type is right up there with smallpox in terms of its transmissibility. And uh, now the difference. I, um, I'm I'm going to try and do some objections that you would hear from the other side, which is sure. But you you're going to see an inflated R naught because of abuse of the PCR um, testing. That's that's what I would um, guess that they would say. Now, yeah, and that's fair. That's fair. Except, okay, <laughs> you what you have to do to make that argument is also discredit that not only has there been a billion tests. But there's been 15 million sequences, full sequences drawn from different patients over the course of three and a half years. And it's those sequences and the mutation rates within those sequences from all across the world at different timelines, across different variants that show, yes, it's mutating quite a bit, but it's mutating in natural ways. And the reason why we can tell with that new Japanese paper that talks about Omicron being so different is because Omicron doesn't follow those rules until it starts spreading itself. And that's you, why it sticks out. He's been out on the streets of Sendai, the professor who wrote that paper. Have you seen that? Have I seen what? What was it that you so, said? The, the guy that wrote uh, that paper about how Omicron's, basically, the way I understood it was that the mutations in Omicron are occurring in almost like a systematic fashion that are that you would yes would seem artificial <clears throat> relative to if they were just uh responding to uh the environment and that's that's his raison d'etre for saying that this is synthetic and they're constantly releasing a new iteration and it's a step stepwise change in site of mutation I, th I think i got that right. yeah i think i think that was a very interesting finding because it would indicate that that each one of those omicron steps does represent a sort of artificial like almost like i don't want to say code on optimization but you can see a pattern that doesn't come from nature in these mutations that are taking place and you're seeing what well, well, what you pointed it out what was really surprising was that when you looked at the different variants that follow from the omicron chain you do see that whereas with the wild type strain as it mutated to delta it was not quite that same it was more following the like, like we're, we're still seeing the mutations clustered around inserts but it took on a different it went down a completely different path when the, when they got to Omicron, which made it look so suspicious. And I, which once again, neither you nor I have said that we think it's not infectious clones, because clearly this was born out of infectious clones. That's just the way that it is. What we disagree with is the um, dynamics of those infectious clones. And so what I, what I don't know is if you want to, so here, this is basically this list right here is just showing that when you sort it by R not, what you see is how things are different and what it is that makes them more likely to, to be transmissible. So not only was SARS-CoV-2 
when you sort it out, um, well, I don't even know where it is, but but if I went back and I and I sorted it by the by this category, I guess I can do it. <clears throat> And well, so, the point I was getting to before that the Japanese author of that paper we were talking about, there's been a whole bunch of video of him in the last week of him standing out on the street imploring Japanese people, um, please, you've got to, um, Japan's at risk, you've got to listen to what I'm saying. We're he's trying to hand out flyers, trying to, um, communicate his data and yeah it's literally <laughs> like a um what do you call it like a street street hustler <laughs> uh, yeah or like you know with it with the cardboard signs yeah yeah, one yeah. End of the world yeah i actually saw those videos and i think that look he's all he's doing is coming to the same realization that we've had for a while and the reason why we've been talking speaking like we have mm. Um, and he's brought up incredibly valid points and um you know i don't know how much um like progress he's making in japan but japan no, in general no, not much the japan in general is still ahead of the us when it comes to this crap so i say not much least, but he, he got some... hundreds of thousands of followers very quickly um yeah so i think well like i said he's getting more traction than than we are over here because there's less insane censorship there. They're a more closed society, but you're still seeing more of a free market of ideas. Um, they, yeah, they as might long as you can do it in anim, then uh, everything's uh, fair game, dude. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and he's he's putting his credentials out there on the line, which is mm -hmm. what you want a scientist to do. You want somebody with the courage to stand up. <laughs> so... Um, and and yes, he. In order for this to matter at all, the virus has to be able to spread. Because otherwise, why does it matter? Who cares? Because then the only thing we have to be looking for is who is releasing this. But the problem is that we can track all these mutations, we can track all this stuff, and there's a reason why why everybody, you know. There's a reason why Kevin McKernan is being attacked by JC because his his arguments destroy JC's claims. Now, um, yeah, basically here all I did was just like sort and show that. Well, I, th I think it, I think it's important to maybe I should have maybe queued up a few scenes, but again, it's it's this fall back to uh, quasi-species um, theorem and the idea that uh, you have a constant error rate um, in RNA transcription. And that is uh, a recognized failing of the quasi-species theory in, in and of itself because it depends very much on the environment in which the replication is occurring and the abstractions that you pull out from a test setup 
whether it's I don't know human lung epithelium or something like that. There's there's nothing. Um, there's a whole bunch missing compared to how the virus interacts in the real environment, and by taking a um, a weak part of the theory is trying to imply that the the virus will resort to basically genetic noise so it, it right. can't do anything and therefore can't persist in the environment and this just that theoretical thinking belies what we actually see in uh, real uh, real space real um, right. real life and by r resting on essentially a straw man argument he's trying to convince people that um, there's been no spread of a pathogen, and um, it's it's an argument that's as full of holes as quasi species theory. I guess I don't want to say quasi species theory is full of holes. It just it has weaknesses, recognized weaknesses, as a um, as a method for describing viral um, dynamics and. Well, we've already, so I, I, I already went through like, I guess, geez, it's almost been a year now where we, we went through the literature and we showed that there's three major frameworks for looking at, at quasi-species dynamics and what they discovered in, since the turn of this, of the century or the turn of millennium, what we've seen is that they've been learning that coronavirus swarm dynamics are different than other swarm dynamics the most the typical case that's made that was made uh, specifically by dan sorotkin um when he's talking about quasi-species swarm and he and he wrote a, an amazing article that really did a good job of introducing it i learned a lot from it um, but his focus was on how those dynamics um work specifically he talked about several things but the biggest one was dengue fever and dengue fever has, I, I want to say it's like four variants and there's a lot of problems that you can get associated with. If you get in and in, like injected again or vaccinated against one, that's more likely to cause antibody dependent enhancement in one of the other varieties, which is what, and so the second time you get it is just way more severe. Um, but that's not how coronavirus cause this swarm cause species swarm dynamics work it just isn't and yes the only claim that that jc or mark or others that have made in addition to this mathematical argument that doesn't play out when we look at the sequences because of the stability the, their main argument has rested on this on this notion that um well that it, that doesn't matter because it can't sustain itself. Well, they're not looking at their literature. Their argument is that, well, we can't trust Eddie Holmes on anything. And look, I, I'm i not a big well, fan it's not of just, Eddie It's Holmes. not just Eddie Holmes. That's... But it's not just Eddie Holmes. Yeah. And when they can show scientific evidence for the arguments that they're making that are borne out by other people, just like yours with you know with the, with the the, the prion-like domains and amyloidogenic peptides. Well, three and a half years on, we're seeing thousands of paper, literally thousands of papers coming out showing that these dynamics across, you know, 
these amyloid fibrils or across the the well everything that's being found they're showing not only that the evidence on the molecular scale but also the evidence on the population scale we're seeing these neurodegenerative things rise so that is proof now the sequencing is also an example of proving out what we're seeing um it, it it's it's providing actual evidence now you can combat that evidence and say okay well we're all primed because of looking at PCR, but as you and I both know, um, they have things better than PCR that they're working on. They have GWAS, they have epigenetic signature stuff that they're working on, so they can actually prove whether or not people have been infected with this crap, which nullifies his argument outright. But at the end of the day, we're seeing viruses, they're able to sequence them, and they're seeing mutations. And what I have on screen here is showing... Um, this is where I took um, mutations listed in, in multiple papal, papers and compared them to the locations of the suspicious inserts in Pratt et al. And there were four in the Indian preprint that was talking about like potential HIV connections. But later on, Gallagher, Bill Gallagher himself, along with Christian Anderson and other people, identified eight, like the the other inserts. So all eight inserts that are basically differences between SARS-CoV-2 and SARS, the original SARS in the spike protein. And, and here we go. And this is just the first two Omicron variants, but we have all eight inserts. We have their locations. And then I have the mutations by variant in those specific regions. And as you go through, basically what you see is that overall, approximately 50% of all mutations in the entire spike protein, so 1,273 amino acids, approximately half of them take place just within these eight inserts, which make up like 4% or something of the overall sequence. So mathematically, that's not, like, yeah, that's a sign couldn't, couldn't something you, is different. Couldn't you argue, though, that because they're, they fold up and they're part of those variable loops that... That they're, that's where the most immune pressure, evolutionary pressure, is put on yes. the spike, and so it's yes. Forced to... But what you've also seen is stability in those regions. So it's been very hard for the virus, as long as it keeps transmitting through humans. You've not seen what happens when it jumps into other species, which is the furin cleavage automatically disappears. So the combination of these things. Yes, there's conformational changes, but as long as it stays in humans, it is very stable. And so what that what that tells me is that these mutations have been very successful. Otherwise, they would have been shaken out by now. And so you're seeing a lot of activity around that, but you're not seeing a massive difference in the functional capability of the virus as it moves through time. It's continued to be well, transmissible. Maybe you can answer this. I was, I don't know, it was a while back, probably probably before you even came here. I was doing it. Oh, yeah, because um, Richard, on his um, presentations, often mentions chemokine receptor 5, right? And, CCR5? And... Um, 
I looked in the literature and I couldn't, it seems um, mixed with respect to is SARS interacting with CC, CCR5 as a co-receptor, if I remember correctly. And the, <clears throat> well, I mean, the, the reason I was doing it was because um, it's, a, it's a HIV co-receptor, right? And so yes. I was I was wondering if those loops were interacting with the chemokine receptor, but it, it, I didn't really find anything that was nailed on and said that they were. That's that's why I was looking. Maybe, I, maybe you have something. Well, so I guess we'll kind of. So here, this is a much bigger chart, but it's not just covering mutations. This is covering. And actually, this is more updated, so you can see where I have the approximately forty or fifty percent throughout over time using this mutation. That's where I get that number. It's a little different on the other chart, but this is more updated. Um, so the the loops, the in terminal domain loops, is what you're talking about, and that there's more. There's multiple receptors, so it's not just like okay, well, there's ACE two binding or, or furin cleavage. There's a whole bunch of different things, which once again is why it's a combination of all these things that makes it so obvious that this thing isn't natural. Um, let's see if we can go down here. What, what we do see is that um, there's there's so much that it's hard to pick just one that, that I can point to because part of the problem is that it's not just one. It's like 50 different things. Mm. But what can, um, what can we specifically say the um, HIV sequences are facilitating or adding to? This, I, um, I guess that was basically the question I, I was trying to ask back at the time. And Well, um, so it depends. It depends on if you're just looking at like the four Pratt and at, at Al ones or the six um, Berger Sorensen and, uh, and Angus Dalglish inserts, which are which is this well, let's, let's stick with Pratt then. Um okay. Well, the only reason I bring that up is because it was the inclusion of two more um sections by uh Douglas and Sorensen that um that best they were able to kind of nail down even further that it, that these were HIV like mm -hmm. sequences, which they were kind of working at the same time as Therese and Montagnier were and using independent databases to come up with the same base conclusion that what they saw was a functional, um, well, the, it's not just DC sign for instance. Um, but what they're showing is, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to mess this up. Because I'm not a scientist, so forgive me, JC. No, you're but, doing great, dude. Um, but the <laughs> it's it's a um... but but what they, what we've seen is we they've been able to show in multiple ways in multiple papers that what we're seeing is a consequence of these HIV-like receptors. Now, whether these HIV inserts actually come from HIV strains, because really what we're talking about is glycosylation sites. Um, the point is that they functionally understand what these amino acid sequences are doing, whether it's the human prion protein or whether it's these 
these ones that form what we believe is DC sign like capability. It's because when they go into the 3D confirmation, oops, um, when they go into the 3D confirmation, it and th there's a paper that that really does a good job of explaining this. It's not about specific points along the amino acid sequence because of the overall net charge of these different glycosylation sites, um, which Sorensen and all. In fact, we'll just let's go there because I'm gonna so that way I can. Of course, now I don't think that it's going to show you in the screen share. Uh, screen new share. Let's go to just screen two. <clears throat> so here I have to go back and read they, this stuff again. It's such it's, yeah. it's such a so here they're basically talking about this. Yeah, yeah, and and basically they talk about how they learned what these things do, and then it, um. And basically, they posit, okay, uh, clinical findings discussed below, observed in COVID-19 pa patients suggest that other receptors for attachment, such as, uh, you know, this DC sign R, may be involved as well. We've investigated and sustained the suppos supposition from amino acid scale biochemical analysis. And then if you look at the companion paper to this, which, which does talk about the origin, potentially, of these sites, they're talking about how, and this is a discussion I've had recently with, with uh, some other people that basically what these things do is they appear to mimic uh, similar receptors that are in um, HIV and it, it doesn't have to be in specific spots. There's arguments saying that because these um, inserts are in different positions in the SARS-CoV-2 spike than in the HIV GP120 in different variable loops, in different positions and variable loops that it can't be the same well it doesn't have to be exact it's the it's the overall net charge in this general area that can create an attractive dc sign receptor and what we're seeing what they have shown whether it was um from you know adam brofsky or uh just other things or su the super antigen sequence we've seen that there's super antigen antibodies and there's dc sign antibodies that are being generated that look like SEB responses or mm -hmm. HIV responses. So it's indirect. Gosh, I hate it. But what, what you're seeing, what you're seeing is whatever is going on, it's mimicking what's happening in HIV. And it's mimicking what's happening with SEB. Wasn't that paper where they, so, they took HIV antibodies and blocked the spike protein that's correct that's another one hmm. so and i mean we could literally do this forever but um, yeah, we're stepping a little bit away from um uh yeah maybe well, we can get mary to jump jump in well, so. well once again the entire point that we're making is that there's tons of evidence there's tons of scientific evidence showing that this is happening. Um, if I clear out this, clear out this filter, and then I go to SCB filter. Um, super antigen SARS-CoV-2. We can you can see that um, 
Yeah, here we go. This is a good one. <laughs> yeah. And once again, published. I mean, since we're not going to make JC happy, even though we have published studies, um, but this one is from University of Pitt Medical Center, which is where JC was working. And th th this was this was Yvette Bahar's group, which was working with Bing Lu before he was murdered mm -hmm. in May of 2020. Yeah. But what do we know? You know, this isn't real. Viruses aren't real. And basically what this shows is that they predicted that an anti uh, staphylococcal enterotoxin B antibody, uh, monoclonal antibody, blocks, <laughs> uh, uh, inhibits SARS-CoV-2 entry into cells in vitro. Uh, and then and this is two years old. They've actually further things have shown this, have proven that this is happening. But in here, I believe it's this one where it shows the. Um, yeah. And this is, they did another paper, right? Where they, they do talk about the homology with HIV and. Um, right. That was one of the real, well, I remember it's a preprint really sort of coming out and. um. Well, it, th th there'd been such pushback against obviously Pradnan. Uh, yeah, and well, also, and here they're showing. So here, oh, scroll back here up, scroll back up, just just a second. I just thought, uh, keep going, keep going. Uh, before I saw OC forty three mentioned there. Oh yeah, that's right here. It's right here. It's this one. Hmm. Uh, acidic polyacidic residues in CDR2 of the, of the monoclonal body 63 heavy chain play a major role in blocking the furin-like cleavage site of SARS-CoV-2 S protein, which by the way, the reason why that matters in this case is because the SEB like super antigen motif that's 13 to 14 amino acids uh, is not present in OC43 or other coronaviruses. Right. So that the, and the, overlaps the furin cleavage site. And the antibody so, didn't, didn't, work basically hi mary how are you hey kevin i'm doing all right um maybe i haven't talked to you guys in a long time well so you've been busy so yeah you got to back up in here. the science world but uh hey, yeah, you've been you've been doing Hello. the most important job which is uh um making new humans so um <laughs> bravo to you and congratulations thank you um, so um you know we we thought about doing this stream because you know there's I'm, I'm watching this side crystallize around uh the idea that it's it's not possible to um propagate uh a rna virus and the presumption is that you always have to keep um adding um clones infective clones to the mix and the the reason that that from what i can work out is is that they're basically making the assumption from quasi species theorem and saying that there's a high mutation rate in um these rna viruses and so it would have it would essentially dissipate into genetic noise and as a as a consequence can't maintain the chain of infection um 
your comments, please. Um, if that were the case, um, RNA viruses wouldn't exist today. Um, that just doesn't make any sense in the world of virology and, and what we know. So that just goes against the uh, basic principles of virus replication and um, how virus fitness works. Sure, that doesn't mean that there's not a state of quasi-species. Those uh, various mutations will always be there. Even in um, DNA viruses that are more stable, you always have a mixture of um, clones. And, you know, when I talk to our patent lawyer, you know, he gets a little nervous because, well, you haven't sequenced your your uh, new recombinant vector. And we don't know if it's exactly the same as the old one. Well, it's not. And there's there's going to be some change there always exists, um, especially when the virus is replicating in a biological species where there are pressures involved, outside pressures um, force the virus to to change along. Um, the most significant changes generally occur when there's a host species jump. So um, that's why uh, there's always been a focus on on bats or, or animals and, and viruses uh, spilling over in into the human population. Um, that's when we see most of the disease occur because, for one, we haven't been exposed to um, a, a virus one, uh, if it's just a, a primary spillover event. And then also um, remember any any organism strives to just make more of itself and not kill its host before it can get a, a large amount of, of virus out. So um, it, it's a, back to selective pressure. I, I'm not sure why this continues to be um, an issue or a concern uh, in, well, in the talks out there. I don't understand. So who's, who's talking now? Um, it's the same uh, oh, okay. individuals yeah. and it's just <laughs> it it continues to sort of carry weight and you know there's uh, like I say uh well I was responding to a tweet earlier and it basically said that it was I don't believe a organism whether it comes out of a lab as natural can spread uh in a pandemic fashion and my response to that is well you, you're taking you, you're taking models and abstractions that come from very contrived environments like the laboratory and then taking these um, mutation rates and thinking that they apply universally in complex environments and um, individuals. And that, that on first principles is just not the case. And the, the, the second point is, is that um, whatever virus you can get into metaphysics of what they are, it's a continuum of information that projects very, very far back into our evolutionary past and will continue to project um, into the future as it um, interfaces with uh, its environment. And it doesn't, it doesn't dissolve away. It's, I, I guess the, I don't know, like it's, it's like saying, oh, if I keep crossbreeding uh, apples, eventually the apples are just going to stop emerging and then randomly some some other fruit is going to they're going to they're going to return they're going to revert to the um to the orange mean maybe they turn back into citrus maybe who knows but yeah. um it's it's this 
it's this um disconnection from um biological reality that i find disturbing and it being used as a um fig leaf for uh trying to well what are they saying that, that they're saying that if you believe that there are bioweapons programs and that they would use them that helps facilitate um transition into the security state um i think that's a nonsense line of reasoning i would want to know exactly the tools that they would try to use and i can still object to the security state as vehemently as possible and perhaps even more so because i can point to extant programs and how they could be problematic so that's that's the problem in a nutshell so well, uh, some issues get muddled when um, I fully believe that the intent is to establish a biosecurity state by exploiting um, spread of pathogens. Um, whether those pathogens are actually, um, you know, causing disease and, and killing people is another question. And again, it's that initial spillover event. So if uh, a virus is created in the laboratory and um, seeded into the human population, you may see a little little spike in mortality in, in vulnerable populations. We all know that was uh, blown way out of proportion and um, exacerbated by lockdowns and, and other measures and, and uh, prescription of the wrong drugs and, and not treating in the hospital. And that's that's where they got the death rate from. But we, we saw in real time um, SARS uh, become less pathogenic with each uh, variant is essentially less pathogenic than the previous one, which is consistent with uh, the principles of virology. And uh, it's now seeded as an endemic cold. And um, in my opinion, frequently comes up as a co-infection, um, an opportunistic infection. And uh, it's, it's easy to get uh, symptoms confused with, with other uh, pathogens, um, RSV and rhinovirus and, you know, flu and everything else. Um, but, you know, you have to think about it in terms of the virus as a whole. It, it does mutate. Um, and these are um, essentially random mutations. Okay. And, and the virus comes out with a random mutation. And if it doesn't survive as well as, as the neighboring virus that doesn't have that mutation, it will not win out in terms of replication kinetics. Um, the one that gets in and, and replicates the best is going to be predominantly the one that takes over the population. Um, and again, I just think these, these issues are getting muddled together. Um, you can have something in the lab be introduced into the population and it be pathogenic. Whether it remains pathogenic over the course of time is uh, a major question. And I know people are, are you know, a little bit scared about the uh, hemorrhagic fever viruses, um, Marburg or, or Ebola or those coming out. What what we have to understand is those are not highly transmissible. Um, those are not adapted to the host. Um, and once they do, or if, if they even get to the point where they could adapt to the host, um, they would become less pathogenic as they did so um, hand in hand with viral evolution. They're also conserved domains of the virus, you know, um, which I think reinforces the principle 
uh, viral fitness. So, you know, the uh, machinery, the, the enzymes that the virus has to make more of itself, um, the polymerase uh, specifically stays very highly conserved among virus families and doesn't change very much, does not accumulate very much mutation. It's always that surface glycoprotein, um, the host cell receptor that incurs the most change because that's how uh, the virus gets in the cell and um, starts this replication life cycle. And if, if the body's making antibodies against um, that region, it can easily change and um, sort of move around how it gets in the cell. We have to remember that virus are, viruses are very promiscuous. Um, oftentimes, they are not just infecting one cell type. Um, they can get in the cell in different ways, whether it's an acidic environment causing that uh, spike protein to become fusogenic or um, anything else. You know, we know about the the spring loaded. Uh, way that that spike works to to deposit the nucleic acid in the cell. I don't know if I'm hitting on the topic, no, um, you, but you're, again, you're, um, explaining the the fundamentals here, and it's I would argue that with what you're seeing is a um, not straw manning. Uh, it's not being um, propagated properly. This um, the element of the the idea that the quasi-species form is going to revert back to genetic noise and cannot spread. Um, it's... Well, their, their argument is also that um, that it's not replication competent because it's it's not it's not producing enough of the full viral genome necessary to replicate. And so it's it's impossible for it to maintain itself over any length of time because it's not producing enough copies. So what would you say to that argument that they're making? No, again, doesn't make any sense from what we <laughs> see in the the laboratory um, and exactly. what we see outside in the world around us. Viruses make billions of copies of themselves. I mean, we have to titer them out to ten to the eight uh, fold dilutions to to tighter the concentration many times um they will always find a, a way to replicate more of themselves and because the rna viruses um, introduce a higher rate of error they are more adaptable so they have a larger array of um, sequences to choose from uh, to become that state of optimal fitness if you will um, and it's, I think this goes back to their uh, misunderstanding of sequencing. Also, there's, there's a lack of depth of understanding of sequencing yes. on, from the same group. Um, uh, yeah. And unfortunately, I've seen this as well in others and not just uh, the person that is, as perpetuating this argument other people um haven't misunderstood sequencing as well and, and made claims off of that and there's been sort of spats back and forth with with ben martin and um kevin mckernan about uh, how that occurs and the mckernan is an expert in sequencing um versus you know um somebody who works on statistical modeling i'm not 
I'm not sure uh, where you get off telling an expert that they're wrong, but it's, it's again, to me, a a laziness uh, to understand the depth of material. Uh, It's complicated. It's hard to understand. People spend years and years of their life attempting to do work in, in just the one area of sequencing. That's what you understand. I mean, biology is such a diverse world. And then we have these little uh, niche of, of virology and people spend their entire lives just studying one little tiny aspect um, in attempt to, uh, you know, understand how the virus replicates, how it interacts with the host. And then you have people off the, off the, you know, on the side coming in claiming they know all and that, you know, why, they can debunk everything and that their theory is correct. Uh, unfortunately, it again comes from a, a place of ego and not willing to adapt one's um, understanding of how things work with the introduction of new knowledge. Um, uh, so, I think we can uh, drop viruses the mic there. will replicate. <laughs> viruses replicate. Um, especially out in the world. I mean, sometimes we have a little bit of trouble getting them to replicate in the lab because we're using one specific cell line. You know, um, I had heard that about uh, propagation of SARS-CoV-2 and and people who were um, working with the BSL-3 laboratories having a little bit of trouble growing it. Well, you were using Keiko cells, try these A549 cells or whatever other cells. And there's a think about how many different cells are in the body and um whatnot so it just yeah it's this disconnect between the real world and the laboratory and it's really uh i would say it's a failing but you know in in order to have like a scientific shorthand you come up with these um formulations and I can think, like I can just give you an example from my discipline, right? So when I started, there was this sort of, and it was, it was the new uh, brand spanking uh, theorem that we had to wrap our heads around, which was just this idea of parallel circuitry going through um, from cortex into basal ganglia, and it's not just motor, it was emotive and functional cortices but there was inherent in what was essentially just a two-dimensional drawing you're trying to put this massively complex network onto it and you know it was hard enough just to learn the basic wiring diagrams and what the you know especially back then you had very very basic approaches to um really sort of teasing it apart and the 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 published models and the uh, the algebra that came out of it, although you could work with it, lacked um, precision with respect to the re- the real world. And this is this is what I think is happening with this um, this idea that you you have a constant mutation rate and it it's going to fall off and not um, and dissipate into nothingness. And also there's this other issue which is um the so you, you, the, the virus will pack or, or begin making a bunch of functional proteins that it wants to um assemble into uh, a functional virion that it wants to spit out into the environment to make sure that it can continue its progression and there's this element and this was in, 
it's very much sort of baked into the neurodegenerative world is that you can have this packing of toxic peptides occur and the virus ramps those up as a means to um, you can say that they're replication incompetent. It doesn't matter if they're getting out and they're causing a disruption to other tissues and organs in the body, right? So mm -hmm. it's calling them replication competent is incompetent is a uh, misnomer to their functional capacity, and mm. um, they can't make exact copies of the original. Um, virus but in virology there's there's defective interfering viruses that have uh, partial genomes that occurs all the time um, more so when you have a high multiplicity of infection so a high initial virus load you get more of the defective particles again like you say that doesn't mean they're fully replication incompetent some of those may be able to get in and make partial um, copies or, or partial but even just translate. the peptides themselves they get they get packaged out. This is my understanding, right? So they'll get packaged out into exosomes, and if you start shuttling those around in the circulation, and they get taken in by other cells, and so I, I'm trying to think of um, concrete way of putting this, right? So let's take something that we know is amyloidogenic. It's it's novel to SARS, which is that open reading frame ten, and we know it's got a high amyloid signature, and it's a very very short read that protein, right? And it's making a whole, whole bunch of that. And that is going to go out. And then once it's into, I don't know if we lost Mary there, but once yeah, it's. I'm here. Okay. Once, once um, as the cell is processing this and um, it goes through all the cellular um, processes, a whole bunch is going to get wrapped up into exosomes, distributed out and sent into uh, the rest of the organism. And that will cause inflammation. That will seed the environment for um, when the mature virion is ready to um, leave the cell. It, it, it increases the fitness environment in which the, the pathogen can operate. It's, it's, the, it's the viral equivalent of um, excreting toxins like a mm -hmm. bacteria would. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?